morning, church. How are you? Good. So we're in, uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to take it out. Turn to Romans, which is in the New Testament of the Bible. Um, the New Testament is the back part of the Bible. Well, the uh, old is in the front, the new is in the back. New Testament starts out with the Gospels, which are four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then goes into some, uh, a book on, called Acts, which is the general history of the early church right, um, right after Jesus' ministry, and then a letter to the uh, church in Romans. And that's where we've been studying last, last few months, and that's where we're going to be today. Today we're going to study the whole chapter, uh, the whole seventh chapter of Romans, and don't laugh because we are going to get through it. Um, we're going to get through it as quickly as we can possibly do, uh, as quickly as we possibly can. But if you remember last week, we came off of, we came off of Romans chapter 6, where Paul was describing the relationship that believers in Jesus Christ have now with sin and with righteousness, that through our faith in Jesus Christ, we are set free from the power and the bondage of sin, and now we, uh, we have become slaves to something else altogether. We are no longer enslaved to sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness, which leads to holiness and eternal life. Uh, and so now but we're in Romans chapter 7, and Romans chapter 7 is an interesting one because some believe, and if we, you'll, I think you'll see as we read it, that it kind of exists a little bit as, kind of sounds a little bit like a diary entry for the Apostle Paul, who is really being vulnerable and, and with a lot of candor, sharing his increasing struggle with the power of sin, and how he desires in his heart to be free from the power of sin and to live in the power of the Spirit but it feels, he says, like in him are two warring factions. The, the, side, the side that desires him to die under the power of judgment and the law, and the side that desires for him to live in the power of the Spirit. And he ends the chapter with this like big question of like, who is going to solve this problem for me? Where do I, essentially, where do I go from here? Here's the reality. I know what I want to do and I know what I should do, but guess what? I keep on doing what I don't want to do and what I shouldn't do, and I, I'm, 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 having a, I'm having a hard time with it, essentially. But he begins the conversation a lot earlier, right? in kind of a strange way, but he uses an illustration from marriage. And this is this is an illustration that it was more contextual to marriage in the ancient Near East and in both in Judaism and in uh, Rome. And we're gonna, so we're going to get there in a minute. But um, what Paul's going to talk about a lot here is what we hear in the Old Testament and New Testament as called the law. And for us, for you and I, if you're not, uh, if you're not a practicing Jew, if you're not an Orthodox Jew even now, the law seems a little bit kind of like out there in the spiritual ether of like not really understanding how it applies to us and if it applies to us and what it means. We see it written a lot about and talked a lot about, 
in the Gospels and in the New Testament, especially in the Old Testament, but what is the law and why? Why do we, why do you and I need to be concerned with it at all? Paul addresses this question. So when we, when we say the, lo- the law, what is it that we mean? What is it that we are talking about? Each of us has at least some kind of understanding of what the law is um, in our contemporary culture, right? It is something that generally um, is supposed to govern our society as we live. It is Sometimes it is followed, right? And sometimes it is broken, right? Um, like, well, yeah, I'm not a lawbreaker at all, right? I, I, follow, I follow all the laws, right? Yeah, me too, right? Until I'm late um, driving somewhere, and then I am a lawbreaker, right? Um, then I'm getting there as soon as I need to, okay? Um, but in general, the law is meant to protect. Meant to protect me. It's meant to protect you. It's meant to pr- protect our individuals and groups and communities. And sometimes, I think uh, you, it's, this is not a hard thing to imagine, sometimes the things that are meant for good can appear now to even be burdensome, especially when those things, they get twisted or they get maligned or they get used in ways that they were really never meant to be used. Uh, The same is true for religious law or the law that we would be talking about here when we talk in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, When it comes to religious law, there was none more expansive than what existed for the Jewish people. There were 613 commandments or laws in the Jewish law for them to follow. 613 to be exact. And they ranged throughout all kinds of different categories, but but generally they ranged from like having a moral and ethical demand or command on someone, like do not lie, right? Do not steal, do not covet, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery. Like there was this ethical or moral component to it. Do not do this. Make sure you do this. There was sections of the 613 commandments that um, looked more like a um, looked more like a fancy diet plan, right? Than anything else, right? Um, do not eat. Do not eat pork. You know, we do not eat shellfish, right? There was there was dietary restrictions. Okay? There uh, was also a ceremonial section of that law. Um, these commands and these laws were meant to guide the ritual life, the re- what we would call the religious life proper of the Jewish faith. So that would be things like um, what happens in the temple and ceremonial washing before special feasts and religious holidays and, and things that, that, that guided the spiritual life of the Jewish people. And listen, um, ancient Jews worked very, very hard, as hard as they possibly could, to abide by and keep all of these laws. They were, it was what their whole life and society was kind of, um, what it kind of rotated around was keeping the law, maintaining a covenant relationship with the Lord. Now, even today, 
um, uh, practicing Jews, what we, the, that term that we would call practicing Jews, um, uh, still uh, ranging from fairly like laissez-faire to kind of like very orthodox Jews, still seek to abide by the 613 commandments of the law even today. And in a manner of speaking, both for ancient Jews and practicing Jews now, their adherence to the law was a measure of their faithfulness to God. The more, the more laws we obey, the closer that we stick to um, obedience to these things, the more perfect we are in our practice of and adherence to these laws, the more, the higher the measure of our faithfulness to God, the closer we are to God. And so Jewish people, um, responding to the message of the good news of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, who was the Jewish Messiah, he was a, he was a Jew himself, following the heart and spirit of these Jewish laws um, themselves, when they, were, when they would come to faith in Jesus Christ as Jewish people, they would really, really struggle to, in their heart, in their mind, and in their religious practice, break free from this belief and practice that to be in relationship with God meant following or adhering perfectly to a written code of 600 and 13 things. It was really difficult from that for them to step away from both the religious and cultural practice that demanded in order for them to be in right relationship with God, they must do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, A, 1, 2, 3. Which is why you see Paul in so many letters of the New Testament arguing with Jewish people about whether or not New believers needed to do things like follow dietary restrictions, get circumcised or not get circumcised. What was the role of baptism, right? Because there was this constant struggle in the Jewish culture of which Jesus came out of, of how much of the old law must we adhere to, must we obey in order to continue in our faithfulness of God. And so and since following Jesus was seen in the ancient world not as a new religion, you, re, do we, you recognize that? That when, that when Jesus, when, when people started to believe by faith in Jesus, calling him Savior and Lord and Messiah, that the outside world, the Roman culture, the Roman world, didn't see what was happening there with those new believers as a new religion, or as a new, a new like um, a new branch of faith, it wasn't like a, oh, all of these this new religion started. It's called Christianity. They're following this guy named Jesus, right? In fact, it, it wasn't that at all. What what it was perceived as is like okay, there's this weird sect inside of Judaism, this weird sect of Jews who now believe that their Messiah has come, and that. And that they no longer need to follow in adherence to perfection, the law, but they now just follow him who completely fulfilled the law. Right? So, so it was seen 
Um, not as a new religion, but as, this, as an offshoot or as a sect of Judaism. Gentile converts to Christianity. Gentile converts to Christianity were sometimes pressured to continue to follow all of the rules of ancient Judaism if they wanted to be a true follower of Jesus. Hey, if you want to truly follow Jesus, you still need to follow all these rules. You need to make sure you're perfect in following all these rules. Make sure you follow all these rules. He's a Jewish Messiah. But, um, uh, let, let me remind you, we have all of these rules We have the law that guides our life together. And man, I've got to tell you, you, when you kind of contemplate that reality, that even in the days, weeks, and months after Jesus had ascended back into heaven and new believers were coming to faith in him, that old believers... We're, 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 we're trumpeting this message that, hey, look, to follow Jesus means to follow the rules perfectly. To follow Jesus means to continue to follow these 613 commandments. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> the more things change, the more they actually just kind of stay the same. The more they, it really just feels like they kind of stay the same. Because here we are, some 2,000 years of separation from the moment that Jesus ascended, right? um, far away both culturally um, and practically from an ancient Near Eastern culture. Right? Here we are, some 2,000 years later in Christianity. And we are still, we still often get plagued with this notion or this idea that to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, you must simply, only, and exclusively just follow the rules. Just follow the rules. 2,000 some odd years later, and the same, the same issue that Paul was addressing in Romans, we still struggle and fight against now. Hey, to follow Jesus, new believer, it just means you got to do these things, and it means you got to not do these things. Just follow the rules. We don't have 613 of those commandments, but we, we do have our own kind of rules. Follow the rules. Don't break the rules. Say the right things. Do the right things. Think the right things. Sometimes just looking good enough is, for you and I, good enough to say that someone is a follower of Jesus. Just looking good enough. Just saying the right things enough times is enough for us to say, oh, they're such good people. Right? We have we just we have a bunch of good people here, right? Just a, a bunch of good people following Jesus, right? Paul's gonna say it, I'm gonna say it, we all need to say it over and over and over again. Listen, church, there is nothing good inside of us except Jesus Christ Himself. There's nothing good in me except Jesus. Right? And and no adherence 
to a written law, no adherence to 613 commandments makes me any more right or good or justified in the eyes of God or in the eyes of men than anything else. Only thing that makes me right and good is the blood of Jesus applied. See, we have come back to the place that Jesus came to set us free from sometimes. We come back to this place of saying, hey, look, just exclusively follow these rules. Look good enough, act good enough, say the right things, think the right things, do the right things, be good enough, and it's good enough. Somehow, after the ministry of Jesus um, in the New Testament, we the church 2,000-some years later have come, play, come back to the place that Jesus literally came to set us free from. We've, we've returned to the old man, from the, um, to use an analogy from last week. We've returned to a rigid moralism that it says, as long as I follow some list of rules and commands perfectly, then I will find myself in favor with God and all will be well. But what have we learned? If we've learned anything from the first six chapters of Romans that we've been studying, what have we learned? It's this, is that we will never be made right with God by simply trying harder. We will never be made right with God by simply trying harder. Just try harder to be, to be more gooder. Right? We will never be made right with God by simply trying harder because righteousness or right standing with God is a gift from God given to us through Jesus Christ. We cannot earn it. Righteousness is a gift from God given to us through our faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot earn it. This is Paul's whole message in Romans chapter 6, at least the second half of it, right? Don't you know that when you yourself are, when you offered your, or I'm sorry, um, Romans chapter 3, right? This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. So what then of Romans chapter 7? <laughs> if, we, if, we, if we get there, right, we get to that point of Romans chapter 7, what exactly does Paul aim to talk about there? Well, like I said, it kind of reads like um, a little bit of Paul's diary entry, his spiritual di di diary entry. Dear diary, I tried again and I failed. The end. Next day, dear diary, I tried harder, I failed harder. The end. The next day, dear diary, I continue to try and I continue to fail. It's funny when we apply it to Paul, right? Because it distracts us from the reality that we, when we continue to try, and we continue to try just a little bit harder, 
and we strive just a little bit more, right? We, we polish the surface of our lives feeling like if we make it just good enough on the outside that maybe it will change something on the inside, right? But the more we polish, the more tired we get, right? And the less direction that we actually move towards the Savior. Because we, we, we fool ourselves, we deceive ourselves. We don't fool ourselves. Our, our hearts are deceived in believing that if we simply wash the outside of the cup enough, it will eventually make the inside of the cup clean. And we just simply never get there. And so we end up exasperated at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at an end of a spiritual season that we are walking through, asking the question, why can't I experience transformation? Why am I still stuck here? Why am I still failing all of the time? This is what Paul, this is what Paul deals with in Romans chapter 7. It's his own, it's his own, like, um, it's his own, like, confession that this is a reality that he experiences in his life, okay? Why am I always failing? What Paul essentially says, paraphrased in Pastor Cameron's words, why am I always failing? Because I am always trying and rarely trusting, I am always failing because I am always trying harder and rarely trusting more. Paul starts out in Romans chapter 7 with this really interesting illustration. Kind of seems out of place if you were just read it all on your own. But you got to place it within the context of what he's trying to communicate. Okay? So listen here, Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, he says, uh, by law, uh, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. Well, okay, Paul, where are, what? What, what does this have to do any, with anything here that we've been talking about? And so, um, but then he, he uses this example of, um, of marriage and, and um, being united with one another and, and death causing a, a break in that, that bond or that unification here on earth to talk about how when we are united with Christ by faith, as we talked about in Romans chapter 6, right? When we are united with Christ by faith and that's exemplified or, simplif simplif or symbolized in our baptism, that we are, we are, that the law 
in us or the moralism in us or the idea that we just have to do more, be better, try harder in order to be in right standing before God, that, that when we are unified with Christ in our baptism, that old way of thinking about our relationship with God is put to death and we are separated from it. We are broken free from it. It no longer, that idea no longer has any, has any binding effect in our life. As death breaks the legal bond between husband and wife, so our death with Christ breaks the bond that formerly enslaved us to the law. This rigid moralism that says you just got to do better, try harder. And we are now free to live into our union, our unification with Jesus Christ as he himself is the spirit, not the written code. Watch what Paul says. Verse 4. So, my, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. You died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. We might belong to another. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. We belong to Jesus, that we might bear fruit to God. We don't belong to the rigidity of the law that keeps us in a pattern of moralism, thinking that if we just do more and try harder and be better, that that's what it takes. We have died to that idea, and we now belong to God in Jesus Christ so that we can go out and bear fruit that is in keeping with our repentance. Verse 5, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We have been, through faith in Jesus Christ, through our unification with Jesus Christ, we have been released from the bondage to the written code so that now we may live in and through the Spirit. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. Instead of despair, there is joy. Instead of bondage to the law, there is now freedom through Christ. Instead of death to the law, there is now life in the Spirit. We, are no, we no longer belong to the law, but to Jesus. And so we might, we might walk away with this idea Right? That, oh, because Jesus has set us free from the law and has put the law to death, then the law must, like, bad law. Bad. It's bad. The law is bad. It has no purpose. It's only the law is judgmental. And the law, um, you want to stay away from the law. The law thank, you, thank you, Jesus, for killing the law on our behalf. Right? Um, but not so, Paul says. He says, he says the law actually has a really, really important function 
in our relationship with and our understanding of our need for a Savior. It is actually critical and crucial to our understanding of how we are actually saved is the presence of the law in our lives. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Paul says in Romans 7 verse 7. Is the law bad? Is it sin? Certainly not, Paul says. Indeed, I would have not known what sin was except through the law. For I would have no, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. This is a really interesting, important um, thing to understand about our relationship as followers of Jesus with the law. We actually should stand, can stand, right, in a place of being grateful for the law that we are now free from. We actually can stand in a place of being grateful for the thing that Jesus has set us free from. But why? Why would we stand in a place of gratefulness for something that Jesus came and set us free from? Listen, because the law reveals the sin that exists in our hearts, whether or not we were aware of its presence. The law stands as a spotlight or a flashlight on our own efforts to self-deceive that we have sin here. And it says the presence of the law illuminates the darkness of the human heart. The, um, actually, I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 7, verse 7 out of the Living Bible translation because I believe that it, it, it really captures this idea. It says this, Well then, am, am I suggesting that these laws of God are evil? Of course not. No, the law is not sinful, but it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never had known the sin in my heart, the evil desires that are hidden there, if the law had not said, you must not have evil desires in your heart. It's exactly what Paul says here. He was like, I, I had no idea that I was carrying around in me a heart that was covetous towards all things around me until the law pointed out that I should not covet. I just thought that this was kind of like a natural way to live life. I thought this was normal. I was generalizing and rationalizing the things that I was doing, the things that I was thinking, the things that I was feeling, until the law of the Lord came into my life and illuminated that the very natural state of my heart was actually one that was naturally dark. In James, uh, the epistle James says that, says that the law itself is not sin and is not bad, but what it actually is, is a mirror that reflects the inner life 
of the one that looks at it intently. So when we look intently at the law, the law becomes a mirror and we see ourselves for who we really are, for what really exists, for what is really here. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This is good advice, right? Yes. Yeah? Do not, literally, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like one who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So why bring up the law at all? If Christ has set us free from it, it's because the law exists as a way that the Lord reveals and illuminates the sin that already exists inside of us. It gives it a name. It describes and defines it. It becomes a mirror for our own unrighteousness so that we are left with the question, what shall I do? Who will save me? Where can I go from here? Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 7. This is interesting here, okay? Is that that the law, the law brings to law. What is the purpose of the law in the life of the Christian? What is the purpose of the law in the one that is following Jesus? It's this. Is that the law brings to life the sin that has been dormant in us. It activates it to life. Now, this is not a good thing. We're not saying that this is a positive thing. But what we are saying is that there is a seed of sin and evil that exists within our souls, right? And then when the law is held up and we see it for who it is, we would naturally think that, well, like, oh, there's darkness there. Get that out of me, right? But an actual, what the, remember, this is Paul's confession of what happens, not what should be ideal, But what happens is that sometimes when we see what the law says and then we recognize it in our own hearts, the sin that has been dormant there now springs to new life. This is like when you tell a kid, hey, uh, don't touch that. Oh, mean this right here? Don't touch this. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Because they said, because we said not to, right? Did they think about touching this before we said not to? No, no. But the law, the command, sprang, brought to life the dormant. The, the dormant sin, sin that said, break the law. Break the law. 
Break that commandment. Do it. Do it. Kind of like this. <laughs> when there is a, say, just say, just let's just say that there is a church in the Jamestown area that plans a February break um, scavenger hunt in the city, and we end at a popular sledding hill, where well, that's the last thing that you have to do, except that you get there, and there's this sign, no sledding allowed. But guess what? If you look down that hill, you know what happens all day, every day at Allen Park Banshell? Sledding happens, right? Now, I can neither confirm nor deny whether or not anyone in this building um, or on this stage got on a sled and slid down that hill that day. But what I will tell you is when kids or people, pastors, see a sign that says no sledding, man, like, no sledding? Man, I will ride my sled standing up down this hill. Like, this happens, right? Does it happen to you? It happens to me. It happens to me where people are like, don't do that. I'm like, I'm doing that now. Wasn't going to until you said don't. Now I'm going to. Why? Because there was something dormant. There's something dormant in the recesses of my soul that was waiting for someone to say don't so that I could. If we were to restate or kind of summarize verses 8 and 9, it says this. It says, um, verses 8 and 9 in Romans, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me, right? It produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin was as good as dead in me. Like I didn't, I didn't even recognize that I coveted apart from the law. Once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, what did sin do? It sprang to life. And I died. I now became a slave to the sin that I didn't know was there. The law came in, showed me the commandment. It sprung up that covetous, to use Paul's example, desire in me. And now it is bringing nothing but death into my life. If we were to kind of summarize or restate verses 8 and 9, it would be, it would, I would say it like this, but sin, setting up kind of a base of operations through the commandment not to covet, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead or dormant. And I was alive blissfully indifferent to the searching demands of the law. But when the commandment to not covet came, sin sprang to life in my life, and I felt the sentence of death. See, once Paul realized what covetousness was, all he could do was covet. See, as soon as the reality of the law of God is revealed in our lives, the sin that lays dormant in us is activated to defy, to disobey, and to revolt against that command. 
Not only does uh, not only does the law bring sin to life, but Paul says the law actually brings death. It kills. Verses ten and eleven. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. See, the commands, the law, if it was perfectly kept, the law itself says, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 15, that in the in, if this law is perfectly kept, it brings life. But when it is broken, the law can only bring and produce what? Death. So kept perfectly, the law brings life. Example, Jesus. Right? Broken, it brings death. Example, us. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. The law, verse 12 and 13, we're going on. So then, he says, the law is holy. It's not sinful. It's not to be cast off. The law actually is holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Why? Listen, because anything that yanks us out of our self-deception that we are okay and good enough and we just need to be better and work harder. Anything that rips us out of that state of self-deception is good and holy and is going to bring life for us. Anything that breaks the hardened crust of our heart that we have allowed to form as we consistently plug our ears to the calling of the Holy Spirit to repent and to return to the Lord, to, to, to be refreshed by confession and repentance and forgiveness. But every time the Lord speaks into our hearts, into our lives, and we are like this, our hearts are gradually hardened and darkened. Paul says that in Romans chapter 1 verse and chapter 2, right? But the law is actually holy and good because it gives us here, again, one more picture of God's graceful action to rip us away from self-deception that, hey, I'm okay, and this thing that I'm doing is okay, and these actions that I'm taking are okay, and this relationship that I have is okay, and these thoughts that I'm having are okay. I just need to try a little harder, and God will see that it's okay. But in 12 and 13, he says, Though, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? Verse 13. By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. This is a tremendous grace from God that we might see the sin of our hearts as utterly sinful and not just as something that we normalize, rationalize, or generalize away. That the presence of the law in our life is actually a gift 
that gives us a glimpse into the way that God sees our own sin so that we may, by his grace, see it the same way and turn to him. See, before we came under the teaching of the gospel, some of us were blissfully unaware of our sin. You might, this might be part of your testimony coming to faith in Jesus. Everything in life was just hunky-dory perfect, right? Then we began to see somewhat of God's righteous requirements for our lives, his call to righteousness, his call to holiness, and our own sinfulness has now become painfully apparent. And then as we have continued to walk and journey with Jesus, as we have become Christians, life is now a continuing revelation of the radical nature of our sin. Do you know that the closer and closer and closer you walk with Jesus, the more and more and more you will come to see the utter disgust of your own sin. Because you will begin to see it as he sees it. As the Spirit of God, right, um, completely engulfs your life and lives within you. The Spirit of God testifies to your spirit the utter disgrace that your sin is. Like as I get closer to as I get closer to God, everything on life is just life is just gonna go up. Yeah, well, yes, okay. But also understand that we become radically more aware of our sin as we become radically more present with Jesus. Radically more. So every day, every week, month, year, every moment, I become more aware that though I have been born again and that my sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that I am thoroughly sinful before the Lord. And so now Paul comes to this moment in verse 14, all the way verse 14 through verse 24, the rest of the chapter, where he begins to describe kind of what it's like for a believer to struggle against the law on their own. On their own. There's, this is all candor from Paul here. There is no pretentious type of piety and what, what I believe, what I hear here is that this is like the cry of every believer now who is trying so hard but is simply relying on themselves. I just got, I just got to do better. I just need more knowledge. I just got to try harder. I got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Like, I just have to do more. I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to do it. It's the, it's, this is the cry of every believer who is trying but relying on themselves. But Paul finds himself just continued to be dominated by sin. I'm talking about Paul here. Right? The great church planter, the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, Right? Met, met the resurrected Jesus himself on the road to Damascus, was, was struck blind by the glory of Jesus, took, took, whose, 
whose spiritual lineage we can trace back to us, right? You are a Christian because of Paul. Because Paul took the gospel, had the special dispensation from the Lord to take the gospel out of the Jewish culture and out of the Jewish faith to the Gentiles. It was him who did it. So Paul finds himself dominated by sin, and so we should not be um, too surprised when we find ourselves there too. But what what does he say? He says, I know, verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. (laughs) I I am sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Anyone's testimony in the room? My testimony, right? Now if I... Do what I do not want to do. It's, I, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So he says it here in verse 21. He kind of like, that was his confession. Here's his explanation. Yeah. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Paul understands what is happening in the spiritual realm and records it essentially here. So I find this law at work. There are There is two things inside of me waging war. I, I, I want to delight in God's heart. I want to delight in God's word. I want to delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner once again to the law of sin at work in my members. Paul recognizes that he is a man that, for lack of a better term, has two natures, one that is delighting in God's law and the other that is waging war against God's law. And he writes about this other places too. It's not just Romans chapter 7. In Galatians chapter 5, he writes about this. He says, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict one another, so that you do not do what you want. And if you're anything like Paul, you're anything like me, you would get to this point in like, this and you're like putting all these pieces together and like I, I don't know I hearing these things for the first time processing them thinking about them praying on them, I'm like getting frustrated internally right 
So I'm like, Lord, I want to do the right thing. I, I want my heart to be aligned with yours. I want to fully delight in your law. I, I want the, your spirit's power in me. But, I'm, but Lord, over here, the, the, the law of sin is still waging war in my body. And I'm still doing things that I don't want to do and not doing things that I do want to do. And I don't, what is, like, I am sick of this. When, like, when, when does this end? That's why I say this is almost like a diary entry of Paul who, who is, is lamenting over the constant war in his flesh between the sinful nature and the presence of the Spirit. And it catalogs and recounts the aching frustration of fighting and striving in our own strength. And I think it is a good and fair representation of how many of us continue to walk today. Struggling with these two things. But listen, Paul asks this question in verse 24 and 25. This is our last point for the morning. It's this. Is that the law, the presence of the law, drives us to the Savior. The presence of what is the purpose of the law in our life as followers of Jesus? What is the is it's not just at the moment of salvation that it drives us to the, to the Savior. It is at every moment where we are continually aware of the waging war that's going on within us, right? Where we step away from our from our attempts to just do better, try harder, be gooder, and we instead turn towards the Savior, who is Jesus, and away from just applying more rigid moralism to our life to try and defeat the power of sin. If this is for us to say, this is for us to say every day. This is not just for us to say at the moment of salvation. This is for us to say every day. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am, Paul says. Who will rescue me from this body of death? It's a great question. The law drives us to a savior. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The word wretch here means means someone who is in a miserable and distressed condition. But notice what Paul says here and what he doesn't say. What doesn't Paul say? Paul doesn't say, what am I going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? How am I going to solve this? What are, the, what are the, the steps or the processes that I'm going to put in my life to make sure that, I'm, that I beat this thing inside of me? Paul does not say, what am I going to do with this? What does he do? Who will save me from this body of death? What does Paul know? It ain't going to be me. I'm not saving myself. I've tried over and over and over and over and over again, and I'm a terrible savior. Who will save me from this body of death? And then he answers, right? What a wretch man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Mm Amen. 
Paul recognizes. And, and, and we must recognize that in our constant struggle against the power of sin, which seeks to destroy us, which seeks to keep us in darkness and deception, which wages war against the members of our body that wants to tell us that, oh, your sin is fine, just it's normal, everyone does it, rationalizing it away, keeping us in self-deception, just try harder, just do more, just read the book, just listen to the podcast, just go to church more, just serve a little bit more, just do this, just do that. Just work really hard and eventually God is going to see your good intentions and everything on the inside will be transformed if you continue to just spit and polish everything on the outside. And Paul says, look, I've tried it all. I've done it all. I've been faultless in my following of the law. And here I am still so aware of the darkness of my own heart and I can't seem to solve it on my own, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I'm frustrated that nothing is changing, but wait, who will save me? Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then I think in all of our Bibles, there's a separation between chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, and Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and I think it's like tragic, right? Because chapter 8 is like, chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 is Paul's like period at the end of the sentence uh, that, that addresses the emotional state of the follower of Jesus who is continually frustrated by their by the presence of this war waging on in them. Because what happens? What happens is that, is, that, is that we approach now life with this thought or this idea, what is, what is wrong with me? No one else is dealing with any of these problems. Everyone else is walking in complete faithfulness to the Lord. There must be something really broken about me. God must be so angry with me. He is, he's obviously looking down from heaven like he's got the lightning bolt like a javelin spear and he's just ready for one more sin. He's going to throw it. He's, he hates me, right? Why, why do I even try anymore? I'm so ashamed of the things that I'm doing. I love going to church, but I don't want to anymore because I just feel this sense of judgment. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to break free from my Christian community. I'm going to stop reading my Bible. I'm going to stop pursuing in prayer. And that now becomes a, a now it becomes a, um, a a like self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Of I can't break free, I can't break free, I can't break free, I can't break free. God is mad at me. God is judging me. God is condemning me because I'm not a good enough Christian, whatever that means. Because what we're seeing here is there's no such thing as a good enough Christian, right? There are all of us who by faith in Jesus Christ continue to have this waging war where we do not do the things that we want to do and do the things that we shouldn't do and and how we're seeking to please the heart of God within our own lives, right? But living in frustration that we just can't seem to get there. And Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that it is he who sets us free from this. And then he goes into eight chapter, um, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, and he says this, therefore, 
Remember, it's at the end of this whole conversation. Therefore, there is now, listen, you need to hear this, right? This is not from Pastor Cameron to you, right? This is not even from the Apostle Paul to you. This is from the heart of God to you this morning that lives in this state of like, the Lord is so mad at me because I'm not good enough. There is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death. The Lord does not condemn you. The Lord has set you free from, from, from slavery to doing it all yourself through the law so that you can be united with him and allow, and allow his spirit to set you free for the life that he desires for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for the law. We thank you for the law that has brought life. We thank you for the law that has been like a mirror that illuminates our sin so that we may no longer live in this state of deception, self-deception on who we are. Lord, I pray that you would use your law to help draw us to yourself. Father, we thank you that we can cease striving. Not working hard, not, not cease working hard to pursue you, Lord, but that we can cease the striving that says, my right standing before the Lord is all up to how hard I work, how good I am. the good things that I do and the bad things that I avoid. Because, Lord, you have brought us life through your Spirit. Lord, we stand and we worship you now, Lord, because you are worthy of our praise. You are holy and glorious, Lord. So let our, let our praises reach your throne and be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.